0: Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, Range and Livestock Specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. Welcome back to The Art of Range. We're going to do something a little bit different today than the traditional uh, interview on a single topic. Uh, We're going to have some discussion around the topics that will be discussed at the the plenary or the keynote sessions at the Society for Range Management's annual meeting. Uh, That meeting is going to be held virtually for the first time this year. Uh, Last year's meeting was in February, just before uh, COVID swept the country. This year's meeting will be February 15th through the 18th, uh, and the entire conference will be held virtually. One significant opportunity from this is the possibility of having people participate in the annual meeting that would not ordinarily be able to travel, either due to uh, logistics, such as a, a ranch family that needs to do something that looks a bit like work in the middle of February, or the expense of spending nearly a week in a larger U.S. city. Uh, so the registration is significantly less than normal. I believe it's $100 per person uh, for SRM members and does not involve any travel. Uh, toward that end, the planning committee wanted to focus these plenary sessions, uh, the plenary sessions are the talks that don't have anything else planned over the top of them, uh, focus the plenary sessions on, on what have sometimes been called wicked problems. So each session is going to have two talks followed by an extended time of discussion with questions from the moderator, discussion among the speakers and the moderator, and questions and comments from the virtual audience. And in uh, my limited experience with several virtual conferences over the last year, uh, we may have more people speak up and uh, provide some questions and conversation in that format than we normally do in a large conference hall, where it's a little more intimidating to stand up in a group of 500 people and talk into a microphone, uh, so I'm actually quite optimistic that we're going to have good participation and maybe have uh, conversation and questions from folks that would not usually ask them. Uh, so we have on the on the podcast today uh, two of the moderators for the three plenary sessions. Uh, We have Dr. Nathan Sayre and Dr. Lynn Hunsinger. Uh, Nathan and Lynn, welcome.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you, Tip.
0: There's probably some formal definition out there for what a wicked problem is, but just off the cuff, my initial thoughts are that a wicked problem is uh, one that is large in its geographic scope one that has uh, a significant effect on human society at large, not just, uh, say, the world of range people, that is uh, multidisciplinary, you know, a problem that spans subject matter areas or the solutions for which have to span subject matter areas, and then obviously one that's not easily solved. Uh, so we wanted to get some keynote speakers who are not necessarily the traditional rangeland science SRM person, people that are working on some of these uh, rangeland-related issues, but maybe working outside of or across traditional range science boundaries. So maybe the first point of discussion here might be, would, would either of you like to refine my quick definition of a wicked problem?
1: Uh-huh. I, th- I think that ta- that more or less summarizes it uh, in my thinking. I th- I, the one, only thing I might add is that I think wicked problems are also problems that don't lend themselves to easy uh, sort of scientific reduction. They don't they don't mm. lend themselves to the types of controlled experiments um, yielding uh, sort of extrapolatable or universal conclusions because they tend to be um, highly context dependent or sort of, um, uh, subject to, you know, different outcomes from similar starting points. Uh, uh, so that it's, it's much harder to, to sort of do a study and draw a conclusion and then go solve the problem.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And tip from my perspective, I've always thought of them as a little bit, maybe this is what multi part of multidisciplinarity, but they have both, scientific and emotional content that can't be ignored and that we're not used to as researchers uh, with coping with. In other words, there's very powerful feelings involved and that makes the problem even more difficult because as Nathan was saying, it it usually can't be solved with an experiment or a measurement. Um, We're confronted with so many of those uh, it's amazing. So it is something that's very important to grapple with today.
0: I like that. I would accept those friendly amendments. Uh, the the three The three wicked problems that will be addressed during these plenary sessions again, February fifteenth through eighteen, uh, are uh, valuing ranching and conservation, both ranching. And conservation, and, and maybe the value of conservation to ranching, and some of the challenges in trying to assign value uh, to to both of those things together. Uh, the the next one will be adapting to climate change on rangelands. You know, here again, there's a lot of things that we don't know. Much of what we do know uh, isn't all that encouraging. On the other hand, many of the things that we should be doing in terms of sound management on rangelands uh, are are the things that would prepare uh, both rangeland ecosystems and the people that depend on them for changing climate. And the third wicked problem is, is wildland fire. This is a, a wide-reaching and a divisive dilemma, and there's quite a bit to be discussed there. Maybe the next thing we should do is uh, have each of you provide a little more introduction to who you are, even though you've both been on the podcast before, and explain why you accepted the invitation to be a moderator uh, to handle some of these wicked problems.
2: I did want to say i reflecting more on wicked problems and uh, feelings. It's also deep-seated values, and we know that that's very much complicates, complicates decisions when, when it's a matter of values. But I'm very excited to be a moderator for the plenary session. The topic is close to my heart. Um, I'm a professor of rangeland management at the University of California at Berkeley. And I think I've spent most of my career thinking about and promoting the idea that ranches are a very good, positive, can be a, and are a very good conservation positive land use. And that is uh, part of the plenary session that I'm going to be leading. I've also, you know, in in these years come to realize that one of the barriers to sustained long-term conservation of ranching and ranches, I think there's a lot of consensus across the conservation, ranching, and range management communities that ranches can preserve biodiversity, open space, watershed, a whole host of goods, and that we as uh, range managers can develop strategies for enhancing those goods. Um, But we have not done as much to confront the problem of how do we keep those ranchings running? How do we make sure that a ranch uh, can do the conservation job for the long term, and I, I think one of the communication barriers between um, range managers, conservationists, and ranchers has to do with that. Has to do with economics. Um, the California Range on Conservation Coalition. I've heard one of the, one of the difficulties for ranchers in joining that group is. Feeling that conservationists understand their bottom-line economic situations and what they need to do uh, to maintain the ranch uh, financially, that that they that conservationists are very involved with. Let's well, save this animal or let's preserve these species, uh, but not so much. How do we make sure that you, the rancher, uh, can uh, earn enough to persist? And then there's also a host of other problems uh, to do with, well, I, I guess that's the main one I think that my group was t- would talk about.
1: So uh, thank you, Tip, and thank you, Lynn. It's a pleasure to to join you both again. I, my name's Nathan Sayre. I'm a professor of geography also at University of California, Berkeley. Um, I am a human geographer, which is to say a social scientist. I have studied um, ranching and rangelands, especially in the Western United States, uh, throughout my career coming into it somewhat, um, inadvertently. Uh, I, I did my PhD in anthropology and of sort of delved into the politics around endangered species and conservation and ranching under the pressure of, uh, urbanization, sub, subdiv- you know, subdivision and development uh, pressures, um, initially in Arizona, uh, I've worked for many years with the Malpai Borderlands Group, which is a community-based conservation initiative, a nonprofit formed by ranchers in Arizona and New Mexico. One of the topics that was uh, front and center uh, from the beginning in my work was was fire and how to manage fire, the role, the ecological effects of fire in rangelands, especially in the Southwest, how they interact with wildlife and uh, endangered species habitat. And uh, the ranchers that I came to know and work with um, were essentially, in many ways, the thing that brought them together uh, was precisely the question of how can we bring fire back to these rangelands um, that... Uh, need fire in order to remain as productive and diverse and uh, profitable uh, for ranchers as as they have been in the past or as they could be in the future. Um, since then, I've also written a book on the history of rangeland science and uh, looked very closely at how it came to be that we uh, in the United States have suppressed so many fires, have put them out, have prevented them from starting, have... Uh, disallowed them from being used by managers, um, and th- the deeper history of that, uh, sort of the the rationales and and logics that uh, informed the the anti wildland fire uh, policies of uh, the twentieth century in the United States. The wicked problem that we're dealing with now, in the, in terms of wildland fire, is is the legacy of that century of suppression. Um, so. That is, you know, that's not the. It doesn't fully summarize what I've I've uh, think of when I think about working with ranchers and rangelands. A lot of my interests and concerns echo what Lynn said a moment ago, um, but I was very happy to uh, agree to chair or moderate a plenary on this topic because fire is a fascinating topic, um, not just in the Southwest. Uh, not just in California, although very intensely interesting topic in California these days, but actually all pretty much everywhere. Um, and rangelands are a particularly significant, important piece of that discussion.
2: You know, um, Nathan, there's a good intersection there in California, because I think as most people listening mm-hmm. know, uh, we've had tremendous fires the last few years, 4 million acres last year alone. We've already got fires here in January now because of a spell of dry weather. And uh, this is influencing uh, ranchers too, very strongly, because they had a long tradition in this state of burning, uh, as they did on the Malpai, I suppose. And as you're saying, that was suppressed, and that's affected the amount of rangeland today available for grazing because of the growth of woody vegetation at a time when. Um, people need more grazing land. So I think that's uh, an interesting intersection between um, our talks. And in fact, it's caused a, a revitalization of the concept of burn boss and a big interest in ranchers groups forming burning associations and doing more burning here.
1: Absolutely. Um, and interestingly, if you look at the West as a whole, One of the things that I um, found buried in the archives of the Forest Service was um, evidence to suggest that for the Forest Service, one of the key tools they embraced uh, early on in the 1920s, give or take, Uh, for preventing fires in forests was to allow grazing and to, in fact, encourage grazing, to try to bring livestock into even very remote parts of the national forests because they knew that uh, the fine fuels that that livestock consumed uh, were also the, uh, you know, the grasses were the the key fine fuel to allow fires to start and to allow them to spread. Um, They were trying to protect the trees, but the idea was that the, the grazing would be a, a key tool. They never quite wanted to say that that was their tool. They put a lot more emphasis on Smokey the Bear and firefighters and airplanes and fire lines and bulldozers and that kind of thing. Um, but but grazing was an important tool. And as grazing has receded from many places, particularly where there are houses and people who would rather not have those livestock, um, that has been one of many, not the only one by any means, but one of many contributing factors to the, uh, the fire landscapes we face right now.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's such an interesting history. What happened to all that? Because ranchers in California used to burn. And then when they stopped, trees and brush came in in many areas where they hadn't been formerly. And now... We have so many trees dying of drought every time there's a significant drought because they're just in inappropriate places and too crowded. It's, it's a fascinating sort of interweaving of human uh, policy and values and uh, ecological change because I think you're right. Um, the Forest Service is very much focused on um, trees and grazing with sort of this, you know, um, hidden thing. Uh, today, we really need to bring it back because in many areas, especially areas that are regrowing now, it can really uh, limit brush establishment under the right conditions. So I'd certainly like to see more of it today.
0: I think that gets at something you were saying a few minutes ago, Lynn, about the uh, the nature of wicked problems. Not only are they involving emotions, but those strong emotions result in these issues being uh, very polarizing, and and oftentimes with more than two poles. You know, for example, in in Wildland Fire, there are people who would advocate for just letting everything burn in order to uh, cause you know some massive uh, ecological reset, and with the assumption that once we get past that point, there will be some kind of you know natural fire return interval that will allow those ecosystems to be relatively stable. You have other people uh, who are adamantly opposed to that, you know, either because uh, those ecosystems are n- not what they were during the period of time for which we think we have some evidence of the historic fire return interval, uh, but also because it probably can't continue that way because there's people in the middle of all of it. and. Uh, the collateral damage of just letting everything burn uh, doesn't is not really socially sustainable.
2: Well, we we had uh, civilizations and cultures here, Native Indigenous Californians, who really burned a lot and kept the understories pretty clear because they it was better for hunting, better for wildlife, better for collecting acorns, better for the kind of vegetation that they needed for many things. And that, I mean, fire was suppressed. Uh, so were the people who did it. So we do have that history. We have uh, indigenous people in California who can help us restore some of that burning. Um, in, a, in many places, uh, grazing can work very well to maintain uh, prescribed burning because it is a little bit complicated to carry it out in many places. But Together, those are just two terrific tools. I'd like to see more um, Indigenous leadership and participation in restoring uh, our fire-resistant landscapes. They talk about resilience, but if you're living in the forest, maybe you want resistance (laughs) is my theory. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the other, um, I just wanted to mention a paper that I wrote with a graduate student uh, and a cooperative extension specialist where we interviewed people whose forests had burnt in one of these big fires in the last five years. And people uh, were very, very interested in restoring the forest, just as you mentioned, to being exactly the way they had known it. Um, If we asked Mm -hmm. them about, well, do you want to maybe restore this to a more fire resilient forest because we're expecting more droughts with climate change and warming and things like that? And they, one of the answers that I thought was most enlightening was, "Oh well, um, I think what does my little tiny property have to do with all this? You know, how could I? Why is this big problem need to be addressed on my mm-hmm. my small property?" There's a phenomenon. I'll just say one more thing uh, that we came across working on this paper called soul nostalgia, mm-hmm. where people long for a miss. Their environments that they had before, and that was so powerful, and that also contributes to what we're talking about as a wicked problem.
0: Yeah, your description of uh, people being resistant to making changes on what they consider to be a relatively small piece of the landscape uh, reminds me of some work that we've done in trying to promote uh, solutions to non-point source pollution. You know, the de- by definition non-point source. Pollution is a situation where, you know, every little piece, every little landowner is a contributor and collectively it has a significant impact. But no single one of those uh, individuals or individual pieces of a landscape are by themselves a gigantic problem. And it sounds like we need uh, non-point source solutions to things like fire. Yeah, your comment about indigenous peoples reminded me of a, a book that was recommended to me a couple of years ago. You too may have seen it. Uh, the book was Charles Mann's book, 1491, about the history of the Americas before Columbus. And I feel like one of the big takeaways for me from that book was the extent to which people have been shaping the landscape uh, in a more significant way than we tend to give credit to. Uh, Both because the populations of indigenous peoples, both in North America and South America, were likely much larger than we previously thought. And because uh, those peoples had more uh, influence on the landscape than was previously thought.
1: Yeah, no, Charles' Charles man is – it's a it's a magnificent book and he's written several others al- around those themes uh, since since that one. Um, it, I'm also reminded me of, reminded of the of the books that Stephen Pine has written about fire and the history of fire in different parts of the world. Um, and I'm reminded of my my uh, here in the geography department, uh, my intellectual ancestor. I actually am sitting in his office right now, Carl Sauer um, who, who made the argument uh, in the second year of the, of the Journal of Range Management? Actually, he mm. pu- he published a paper about climax and grasslands and fire. Uh, he was arguing against the idea of climax, but in that paper he uh, he pointed out that humans, as we think of them now, Homo sapiens. Um, And grasslands and fire co-evolved with each other, um, and that we would probably not have become Homo sapiens without the control of fire that was obtained um, by our ancestors two to three hundred thousand years ago. And that everywhere humans have gone, uh, fire has gone with them, and they have used fire to uh, manage the landscapes they've lived in, Uh, grasslands being perhaps the key example from an evolutionary point of view, but certainly not the only one. Um, And this gets to the question of wicked, wicked problems in the sense fire is one of those wicked phenomena uh, precisely because it's it's it can't be reduced to any simple um, sort of summary judgment. You you can't say fire is good or fire is bad, just like you can't say grazing is good or grazing is bad. Um, The details always matter. Uh, so much, and the history matters, the context matters, um, and you'll get different results from what looks like the same fire in the same place at two different times, or in different places at the same time, in ways that um, you know really open up into the, some of the questions that you know. You talk about the art of range, um, the artistic part of range and range management is is a similar phenomenon. Um, the what it takes to do it well is is not something you can write down in a book and say here's the recipe just go do it 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 requires a certain kind of artistry and and feeling and i think uh fires and understanding how to use them when i said earlier that grazing was a way to suppress fires for the forest service it doesn't mean that if you just sent a bunch of cows out there now you'd solve the wildfire problem today it also Mm -hmm. it also doesn't mean that it's a it's an either or that you get to have fire or you get to have livestock grazing. It, we actually, um, we need to understand how to use them both and use them together.
2: That's exactly right. You know, I've been, it, we have, we graze in California, but we graze for, we've been grazing for biodiversity, for income, for this and that, but we haven't really studied how to graze for fire reduction at this point, And we really should. It's time to do that. There's places where it's going to work, places where it won't. Uh, all kinds of factors that we need to understand better. But I think it's a exciting area for range managers to delve into managing grazing for fire hazard reduction. And so important. I just can't tell you how awful these fires have been, really.
0: We've done a great job describing the problem. Uh, Nathan, do you want to uh, provide a brief introduction to the people that we've condemned to try to speak on this issue.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to. Uh, there are two speakers in 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 the plenary that I'm moderating, um, John Keely and Navashni Govender. Uh, John Keely is a research scientist with the U.S. Geological Survey. He's based out of Sequoia National Park here in California. Um, he's been there for about 20 years. Um, before that, he uh, had a 20-year career as a professor of ecology at Occidental College, and he's also now an adjunct professor at UCLA. And he's been studying fire and fire ecology um, through, for his entire career um, with an emphasis on, among other things, um, the interaction of fire with climate, the interaction of fire with invasive plants. He is interested in the growth of wildfire in California and the various causes, you know, factors contributing to that that growth. Um, And he intends to speak uh, about several examples from the United States that illustrate the sort of diversity of dynamics that you can expect to find uh, in in rangelands with regard to fire. So, for example, the the Southwest, as I mentioned earlier, um, is a landscape where uh, historical overgrazing uh, has led to uh, a, a diminishing fire frequencies and uh, areas burned which is, which has changed the vegetation and made fire less likely to happen Uh, on its own. You've seen grasslands give way to shrublands that do not carry fire or burn as as easily. And that condition becomes, um, in a sense, almost permanent. Mm -hmm. You can take the livestock away and hope that the lack of grazing or the rest will somehow bring the fire back. But um, in many cases, it won't. The shrubs will prevent the grasses from coming back and you will not solve the problem by um, undoing what you think caused it. Um, another place he is going to talk about is the Great Basin. Uh, the Great Basin is a place where uh, we have seen uh, grasses take over uh, former shrublands or steplands. Um, those grasses uh, tend to be annuals that are uh, very prolific and very fire-prone, and they uh, take over uh, in in ways that lead to more fires, and those fires, uh, uh, in many cases, uh, not only kill the shrubs or, or – uh, set the shrubs back, but also lead to still more of these annual grasses. And as he points out, um, you lose the, the patches of shrublands from which uh, recolonization might occur uh, under, under prior conditions. And then he also intends to speak about California and uh, the, the role of fire interacting with chaparral, interacting with um, also annual grasses, many of them invasive, um, in, in the context of rangelands in California. Our second speaker, uh, Navash Nigovender, comes from South Africa. She is the senior manager uh, for uh, conservation management at Kruger National Park, uh, one of the world's most famous national parks. It's where you can see the elephants and the rhinos and the giraffes and the lions. Um, She is... Doing studies on fire, long-term studies of fire ecology in Kruger National Park. Um, she previously was was in the science branch of Kruger, but now is in the conservation branch, which I believe has put her in in a much more management-oriented position rather than mm. simply research. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, she actually mentioned that I guess under South African law. Much of the country is. It's required that local landowners form what are called fire protection associations. Um, which is an interesting idea. We might think about how, how we might use something like that in the United States, which is to say local landowners who come together and think about how to, uh, manage their landscapes, manage their properties and their vegetation, uh, including grazing, uh, to uh, achieve the goals that they identify for that landscape. Um, inside of Kruger, they, they think of fire very much as a tool, um, she said she said, along with elephants, fire are the major fire is the major driver of of vegetation there. Um, these examples, I think will give us a nice opportunity to reflect on the diversity of dynamics. Um, you know, in some places, fire leads to grasses in some other places um, fire does not lead to grasses or leads to grasses that we don't want so many of. Um, grasses and fire have co-evolved, but it's, again, not something you can make a simple rule and say it applies everywhere. Um, so I'm looking forward to the, the conversations that come out of these, uh, these two talks.
0: I'm looking forward to it. I'm wondering if you have any plans to replicate the elephant research in Central California.
1: You know, we joked about that. We need we need some. Uh, we've joked about elef- needing some elephants in the Southwest to eat all the mesquite <laughs> trees. Um, well, yeah. John John seemed interested in possibly getting some some mega mega herbivores from uh, South Africa, but I, I it sounds like it's not that easy to get them.
0: Yeah, I'm sure not. Uh, Lynn, let's talk a bit about this plenary session on valuing ranching and conservation. We've we've gone round and round looking for a. Possible catchy title that is descriptive and uh, intriguing. Do you want to say a little bit more about what you see as the the big idea here?
2: Okay, um, I we haven't actually finalized what we're going to talk about, so it, um, it's an exciting. Just be excited in anticipation about it. Um, you know, we uh, in in California, we have conducted. We really are pushing on the prescribed burning idea for preserving uh, reducing fire hazard and restoring forests and grasslands, and we succeeded in uh, doing less than a hundred thousand acres of prescribed burning uh, annual despite this huge effort. Uh, we graze twenty to thirty million acres in California, so there's a lot of potential there, but this will come to nothing. We can't use grazing as a tool for fire hazard reduction or for biodiversity uh, conservation or land conservation without the participation and enthusiasm of California ranchers. So, the wicked problem, I guess, although um, is the wicked problem, is how do we get that enthusiasm and maintain it from our ranchers and from um, Conservationists and from scientists working together because that's what it's going to take. And that means agencies, uh, nonprofits, and private landowners as well. Uh, I focus a lot on California, but my session focuses on the West. And I'm very pleased that Carter Cruz, the Director of Conservation and Biodiversity for Turner Enterprises, uh, is one of the panelists. And Carter is really eager, I think, to share. Uh, what the Turner ranches are doing to become uh, sustainable, more sustainable, what they see happening in the future, how they're going to draw on their resources and, um, and education and research opportunities and uh, the goals that we all have for ranch conservation to build uh, a sustainable future for the ranch now, the grazing animal in this case is the bison. So there's a large herbivore for you. It's not quite an elephant, but it's pretty big. Um, and it's a species that's uh, native to Montana and to the area where uh, the Turner Ranch in Montana is. And I'm very excited to learn more about the, the bison and how how do you ranch bison, right? Um, they're large, imposing animals, and it also kinds of builds a connection with our last annual meeting where we visited uh, a bison ranch in Colorado uh, run by um, a local uh, tribe. So I I think there's an exciting connection there too. But um, that's a very sophisticated enterprise. They've given a lot to thought, to marketing, uh, to management. uh, Obviously Carter's very involved in biodiversity conservation but also in this idea uh, that the long-term bottom line has to be thought about and has to be considered. So I'm very excited to find out what uh, his thoughts and the thoughts uh, of the enterprise are for fostering a really sustainable long-term outlook for ranch conservation.
0: Yeah, I'm interested to see how that is received. I, I really like the idea Uh, of what they're doing. And, and my thinking on this was changed somewhat by speaking with James Rogers with the wine cup gamble ranch. They're a million acre corporately owned ranch in northeastern Nevada. Uh, and he, he spoke pretty, um, forcefully on the role of corporate ranching in the, in the commercial ranching world. Um, I guess primarily, you know, one one of his perspectives is that these large ranches can take financial and even ecological risks to help solve problems uh, that the problems that commercial ranchers have in a way that family scale commercial ranches cannot, and probably should not. Uh, so they're they're able to try things on, you know, both large scale experimentation. And uh, and maybe larger scale application of things that you know the range science community's been saying we should do for some time that's more difficult to apply at a smaller scale, but I think the other big thing that, that they're trying to uh, help define is that you know the the one of the difficulties in the social and economic sustainability of ranching is that the you know the annual monetary profit that's possible in commodity beef production doesn't come anywhere close to representing or approximating the, you know, the the many non livestock values of large natural landscapes that are only kept natural by virtue of having an agricultural business running on them that is land intensive. And so finding some other ways to both art- articulate the different values that are present on large intact landscapes uh, and Finding some ways maybe to make it to uh, for ranches to receive some value from that, uh, I think is is a really significant way that these corporate ranches which sometimes get a bad rap, are serving family ranches.
2: Yeah, I think that um that everything you said is is true. uh even small ranches often rely on outside income. But obviously, they don't have, you know, somebody works, members of the family work. Uh, that was pointed out as early as uh, 1972 by research in Arizona, but uh, by Smith and Martin. But in fact, um, there's a role for that. And by if a, if a commercial ranch or a large ranch can take the risks, it's easier for them and learn new things about how to do things in a value-added way. Um, that does eventually benefit everybody, I think. Uh, bison might not be appropriate for smaller ranches, or it might be. We don't know. We don't know enough yet. And so with a larger ranch having the chance to take the risk and find out exactly what it entails, uh, that can be helpful because there is a value added there. Many people are very committed to the health benefits of of eating um, bison. There's, of course, a whole host of other things to explore, and we know that many uh, of these larger corporate properties are doing different kinds of grazing systems, or uh, and they can take the risk in trying out new things in that area, uh, finding ways to market ecosystem services of various kinds through tours and through um, uh, things like bird watching or other areas where there's funds for supporting production of biodiversity, and all of that contributes to the knowledge base, I think, uh, for how everybody uh, might be able to take advantage of some of the opportunities that are out there. So I know that that is a tension and somewhat of a conundrum, uh, but I also think there's some real advantages there uh, if... if, if this works out, <laughs> and if this knowledge is shared, um, and if people can take advantage of what, what other people learn. And um, I think that's that's a real opportunity. I do think it's an interesting situation in the United States as we transition to new generations. I'd be interested in what the panelists and my group think will change as generations change, because we are talking about a multi-generational System And we've seen uh, a lot of different uh, trends talked about that ranch daughters are taking over some of these ranches um, and things like that, that, that are very interesting for the future of ranching. So I'm really interested in, in what the group might have to say about that as well. I wanted to mention our other group panelist, Sasa Jeanette, who is the director of Sustainable Grazing Lands Programs, Uh, for North America, for the Nature Conservancy. And the Nature Conservancy has has been a real leader uh, for a long time in ranch conservation, uh, including down in Nathan's country uh, of the Malpai. So I'm I'm very interested in hearing uh, what the Nature Conservancy is doing, how they work uh, with the ranches, uh, that they have easements on, uh, that they support in various ways, and how they view the future of of ranching playing out. Uh, Will there be more corporate ranches or more smaller ranches? Those kinds of questions I think are really important. Uh, Will there be more absentee ownership and what are some of the impacts of absentee ownership on on ranching? Sometimes it can be um, positive. Sometimes it can be a problem. So what's, what's happening with that and what do they see as trends there? And also how the Nature Conservancy and other nonprofits think about ranch sustainability in terms of the economics of of ranching enterprises. Uh, How aware are they and how do they see the nonprofits contributing to that or accounting for that in the way that uh, easements and collaborative programs develop? Because I do know that that is uh, an interesting area for people. I've seen areas of the world where ranches are large and mostly in absentee ownership and the people that do the care for the ranch and that take care of it every day are caretakers who live on the ranch themselves for multi-generations, but who starting out as a new family don't necessarily have the capital to buy a ranch. That's becoming a a problem and a limitation in the United States as well. And how is that going to play out? So I think there's a lot... Uh, To talk about. And I don't want to neglect uh, the NRCS, the role of the NRCS, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and other agencies in this whole uh, picture that may emerge of how ranching's future will look.
0: Mm -hmm. This too is an issue where there has maybe been a longer history of polarization, uh, where you have you have people who are adamant that ranching destroys natural ecosystems and then you have uh, other folks that are adamant that ranching is the only means of preserving natural ecosystems and then uh, quite a few in the middle you know it seems that this is uh, a big uh, a big point of contention because there are not any other sectors of agriculture that are practicing on essentially, you know, n- native or natural intact landscapes. You don't plant an acre of corn without taking out everything that was there before. But you can raise livestock on a land- landscape that, um, you know, can look the same, or close to the same, as it was before there were livestock there. Uh, but of course, if it's done poorly, it can be um, pretty ugly, and so the the two of you have been occupying this radical middle, as Richard Knight says, for longer than I have. Do you see? Do we see enough success on the part of um, sustainable ranching and ranchers that that polarization is lessening? This would be a good year <laughs> for some moderation.
2: Well, this would be a really good question for Sasha and Carter to address. I really would be interested in their point of view. Uh, Mine's kind of California centric where I think there really is a consensus building because of our environment. And we are not alone among places in the world with a similar environment and having both a large fire problem and a tremendous opportunity uh, for biodiversity enhancement through grazing. It, it's really well documented in many parts of the world uh, in our kinds of climate that grazing is very, can be very wildlife and habitat positive. Uh, Nathan mentioned our quote unquote invasive grasses in California. They there are, there are some and there's new ones all the time, but there is also a very stable backbone of non-native grasses in California that dominate the grassland that have been here for a couple hundred years uh, and have been the backbone of the grazing industry. And the only way to make those manageable uh, in a cost-effective way and to keep them from suppressing habitat values and enhancing fire hazard is through grazing. And more and more people are coming to recognize that there will always be and here's where we get into the values and emotion area. People who don't, they just have a negative reaction. You know, they, it's really, I've, I've really been interested in this problem. You see rangeland, and as you mentioned, it doesn't require a complete conversion, not even much of a conversion of all, at, at all of the ecosystem. It's an extensive land use, and people see ranches and grazelands. Most of the year, the cattle come through, but a lot of the year, there's nothing there, no cattle there, there's things there, but there's no cattle. And they assume they're pristine, natural, you know, natural lands that just came into being, you know, on their own. And that if you just fence it and keep everybody out, including cattle, it will be fine. You know, it's going to just stay that way. But it's a very dynamic landscape, as Nathan also pointed out in Munch of the West, And we're blind, Uh, we think of these people as being blind to the fact that ranchers have had a role in uh, managing that landscape for uh, a couple hundred years. And also to the fact that indigenous people had a very strong role creating and managing that landscape for thousands of years. And when you fence it uh, or keep exclude humans and their influence, uh, it changes to something very different Uh, That may not be habitable, really, uh, especially when you talk about fire. So um, we've got to do a better job of thinking about this interrelationship of people and the environment and the history of that. And stop assuming that this was some wilderness in North America in general. Um, It was, I've heard my indigenous friends say, this wasn't a wilderness, this was our home and our garden. And I've talked to ranchers who say, you know, my grandfather and you know, I know someone who's been in this area right here for five generations. He's still here, his family's still here, and they know that they created that landscape. They know that they've created valuable habitat for and more than one, several endangered species on their land by their activities and maintained it. And that's a really interesting phenomenon. But in terms of the wicked problem, I kind of went off but in terms of the wicked problem there is this feeling when people see cows for some people that oh that's exploitation for some reason they don't necessarily feel the same when they see a cornfield and yet one has a very different and manipulable and fairly light can have a fairly light impact on the land but it's just an idea that this is uh an unnatural activity and the other one that i think is particularly wicked is the idea that and this is where it gets takes me back to where i was started that people shouldn't make money off of public lands we have a great deal of grazing on public lands in california not necessarily federal state local municipal lands for the reasons i've just talked about very useful for management and uh, i've even heard of uh public groups telling an agency that they wanted to make sure that nobody made money off of that land, off of using that land, that that is somehow wrong. And of course, a rancher can't do what's necessary to be done in terms of grazing without supporting the ranch. It's an incredible deal that some of these agencies and groups are getting that a rancher pays to manage the fire hazard and pays to manage the land because they can make an income from it. So that needs kind of a revision of thinking too, that, you know, this is a break taxpayers not only don't pay for the management of our regional parks around here for their grazing Mm -hmm. that reduces the fire hazard by cattle anyway, and that uh, helps maintain biodiversity. The parks gets that, you know, a considerable sum in fees from people who graze that land. So it's a little special here in California, but I think some of these values and deep feelings come into play uh, when we talk about uh, these using grazing for conservation and grazing as a conservation positive uh, that keep us from understanding, one, this long-term relationship and creation of the landscape, but also, two, uh, what, why people use it and how it's not necessarily bad to earn an income from using it while accomplishing all these other goals. I think that's a very uh, interesting problem that we've simply got to get past if we're going to have a long-term conservation situation.
0: I'm looking forward to hearing Carter and Sasha talk about that. I'm chuckling at our final sentence in the description of this plenary session how can public perception consumer preferences food industry drivers cattle market signals stewardship incentive programs and institutionalized land tenure arrangements be used to support the broad valuable suite of environmental and cultural goods produced through rangeland ranching uh, the, that question could occupy us for a couple weeks <laughs> so worth we of
2: sessions for
0: a long time. i think i might have actually written that at Sounds a little too expansive, but uh, it gives them some room to talk about something, I suppose.
2: Well, you've covered all the bases, Tipton, and I'm sure people will talk about their favorite topics. And I think we're also going to have opportunities for questions uh, from the audience, right?
0: Yes, we will. So
2: I think we'll... We'll cover a lot of ground and we'll cover the ground people are interested in. Uh, I would like to, I don't want to talk too much and too graphically about food because I become distractingly hungry during those kinds of discussions.
0: <laughs> this will likely be immediately prior to lunch as well for many people's time zones. So that could be a difficulty.
2: Eat a snack before you come.
1: <laughs> I wanted actually before we wrap up, to mention um, the organizer of the plenary that I'm moderating, Devin McGranahan, um, who uh, was until just recently a professor at North Dakota State University, and he's now taken a position with the Agricultural Research Service. Um, he, he, in his part of the world, the Northern Great Plains. Uh, to circle back to your question a moment ago, to there, there are a lo- there's a lot of interest growing in collaborations between ranchers and conservationists around, around birds and bird habitat and the importance of fire for grasslands and grasslands for birds and the and the concern around the rapid decline in um, abundance of many grassland obligate bird species in the in the Great Plains. Um, he also he 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 told me he feels that one of the unifying themes of this plenary. Um, is not just is not just wildland fire and its complexity and its uh, diversity, but but the idea, the concept of a fire regime, um, that the the effects of fire should be understood not in terms of individual events that. You know, say burn down a forest, or um, you know, spare a community. Uh, the from an ecological point of view, uh, the the question is really the regime: how how frequently do fires happen? Um, what are the conditions in which they typically happen? How intense are they? How large are they? And how and uh, how quickly do they return? Um, and those are the types of questions that open up, um, you know, larger issues such as as habitat. You know, because the habitat is going to, the, the birds are going to respond to the habitat on a time scale that uh, is not just this year or next year. It's actually over the course of decades and, and centuries and, and even longer. Um, it's one thing for us to imagine trying to restore the fire regimes that prevailed, say, when indigenous peoples managed California, for example, um, or that prevailed uh, prior to the arrival of, of Europeans in the southwest uh, when a lot of those shrublands were grasslands. Um, we know quite a bit about those fire regimes and we can uh, tell ourselves, well, that's what we need to get back to. But the fact of climate change going on is... Uh, over the, you know, let's just say, over the last hundred years, its 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 signal has emerged more or less uh, distinctly in different parts of the world. Uh, by now, it's really hard to dispute that it's, you know, that that this is happening, and that means those fire regimes uh, are, you know, even if we wanted to achieve them, even if we had the tools and the money, uh, those regimes might not actually hold in the way that they have evolutionarily and we are starting to see fire behavior uh, fire scientists are are talking about wildland fire behavior that is simply um sort of indescribable in terms of the previous uh, models and and scientific research and knowledge Uh, we are seeing fires do things that we didn't think could happen um and that is clearly a a a symptom of climate change and makes the, the question of how do we manage fire how do we bring fire Uh, back into the toolkit and use it effectively and economically uh, that much more complicated.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I totally agree with that. I think we talk about a lot management versus fire. You know, do we need better management or I mean, management versus climate change? Is it management issue or is it a climate change issue? The fact is those two things are both factors in our current situation, a lot of vegetation and landscapes have changed and climate is definitely changing. And it's, uh, there's a desperate need for all the tools that we have. And that's one of the reasons why grazing has to play an important part. Um, we really need the research to understand the relationship between vegetation and climate change and fire So I think there's a lot of opportunity there for doing that. Traditional grazing has always, uh, just to address your original point, um, Tipton has always been, you know, in the thousands of years of the history of pastoralism and grazing of landscapes um, has always been relegated to the more harsher uh, harsher marginal environments, and people have learned how to cope with those, uh, how to adapt. Uh, A lot of that has been by moving animals around uh, to various kinds of dynamic changes, to the kinds of cold or drought uh, that occur on rangelands, even without climate change, can grazing continue to be flexible? How can we continue to make uh, our grazing patterns and our grazing uses flexible and adaptive? Uh, There are some big barriers, uh, you know, there was, fences are one of them uh, in, under a traditional pastoralism scenario, you don't see a lot of fences because animals move around from the mountains to the valleys, from one region to another as dictated by these variations in the weather. But we don't do that anymore. That doesn't work with the way we live in the United States. There's probably opportunities to enhance some of that, but it's another real challenge. I, I guess we've what we've done is, um, we have the inherent capacity to be flexible. Animals can move. Range animals can be fairly tough. There's a lot of different kinds of range animals that are better suited to this vegetation or that vegetation and this vegetation and that, and climate, different climates and so on. We have a lot of opportunities to be flexible. How can we be there? I guess what we've done is really uh, provided some uh, of our views of the future research that we really need. We really need to understand, of course, fire regimes and how they work and how we can implement them given that we have houses mixed in with a lot of this vegetation, that we've had so much vegetation in some areas that we literally can't use either grazing or burning, things like that. Um, And we have uh, changes in the way land tenure is structured and et cetera, et cetera. So I would would challenge uh, new scientists to work on these problems and help us find a way to the future.
0: I think that's a good conclusion. I would add to the list of challenges that, uh, as as Nathan and others have argued, the people who are dependent on these marginal landscapes are themselves often marginalized, uh, and that doesn't make it easier to exercise flexibility and to manage in ways that may be uh, good for the landscape.
2: Well, you are absolutely. I don't think. <laughs>
0: I don't think we address that in our in our sessions but those are some questions that would be uh, fun for discussion inside of these plenaries once we get to the Q&A. Uh, the the meeting registration is open and I suspect there's no uh, early registration cutoff because of the nature of the meeting. Uh, if you go to rangelands.org that's the Society for Range Management's main website. Uh, the link to the annual meeting will be at the top of that webpage, and I would encourage listeners to take a look at the program and, and consider registering. I, I truly think it'll be worth your while. This is one of the only meetings that I attend every single year uh, because it is always relevant. And this one in particular, I believe, will be uh, relevant to anybody who has an interest in rangeland landscapes and livestock production. Uh, to either of you want to make a concluding remark?
2: I am so looking forward to this tip, and I really um, thank you and the SRM for the opportunity to lead this plenary session. I think it's going to be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I would echo that. Um, thank you, Tip, for the chance to talk. Uh, good to hear your voice again. Uh, pleasure to spend spend this hour talking with you and Lynn. Um, I am looking forward to the meetings as well. I, I have a kind of uh, nostalgic feeling because last year's SRM meeting was just about the last time I traveled. Um, and certainly, <laughs> cer- certainly the last time I attended a big meeting like this. Um, but our session, our plenary session is, um, if I have it correctly, it's the afternoon of uh, February seventeenth, and I hope uh, everyone will will tune in. Um, and Tip, didn't you say that the, the the plenary sessions are actually open access? Is that correct?
0: I will. I believe that may be the case.
1: So it might be that someone could listen in even if they weren't paying the registration fee for SRM. I suppose SRM might not want to know that. Want them to know that, but I, if that's the case, I would. I hope we could have even a broader audience.
0: I think that would be great. And, and even though I sincerely hope that we don't have an entirely virtual meeting uh, ever again, I do think that uh, being forced into this format is, is going to open up some possibilities for uh, getting the information from these meetings out to more people than they have in the past. I actually had a conversation with an executive for a state livestock association, uh, just about this time last year and was showing that person the program for the SRA meeting and they said holy cow this is every single one of these is you know relevant to the to the issues that all of our members have in the western states and um, both ranchers and association representatives should be participating in that I wholeheartedly agree and I really hope that uh, a number of Ranchers that would not usually travel to a meeting will participate in this one, and that that will be a uh, become a habit in the years to follow. Uh, so, thank you, Dr. Nathan Sayre and Lynn Hunsinger for participating today, and thank you especially for being willing to moderate these sessions. I am personally really looking forward to them, and uh, I'm confident that they're going to be useful to everybody who's participating. And we, I look forward to visiting with you in a few weeks.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona. And funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of
1: Food and Agriculture.